mystical force out there, and that is absolutely not the truth that we get from the Bible. Like we saw last week, God is self-existent. He is eternal. He is creator of all things created by none. And what's remarkable, we go through the Trinity. I think we just, when we think of God the creator, we think of God the Father. Um, and uh, what's really remarkable as you go through Scripture is you see Jesus Christ involved in creation. We see Jesus Christ as creator. We see the Holy Spirit as creator. It's really the full Trinity that's in effect. We saw critically that God is knowable, that he has chosen to reveal himself to us. And while we can't have perfect knowledge of God, and we can't have exhaustive knowledge of God, we can truly know everything that we need to have fellowship with God, to live the life that he's called us to live, to live the life that, that, that he's given us to his glory. Sorry. It's hard to concentrate, isn't it? It's all right. I just pretending like you're not even here. Good job. <laughs> but uh, the, the third thing we talked about with the person of God, he is one. We do believe in one God, one true God, but this one God exists in three persons. Um, so that's kind of what we talked about last week for the person of God. Then we moved into his attributes. We talked quickly, just review. Three inches, like can it be around like that? It can be around, but but you're about five now, so don't be scared of getting into it. All right. Well, we'll do my best. We'll be all right. Communicable and non-communicable attributes, we talked over that. So, again, communicable being those things that um, we can share with God. Attributes of God that can also be attributes of our lives. Love. We can love. God is love. Righteousness. God has, is perfectly righteous. We're called to live a life of righteousness. So communicable attributes are those attributes we can share with God, yet obviously we don't do it to the infinite perfection that God does. Then non-communicable. Attributes of God that simply we can't possess in any measure. Uh, eternality. God alone is eternal. Uh, sovereignty. At no point in your life will you ever be even remotely sovereign. I can't control the sound system. I'm not going to try to go beyond that and try to control other things, right? So uh, God, the, the communicable and non-communicable attributes. And we talked also, again, importantly, the way that the attributes of God work together and they balance each other out and they interweave um, in, in the way we see uh, God's character and the way we see those things acted out. Um, we, we talked about you wouldn't want to remove a single one of the attributes of God because then you have a very scary situation. If you have an all-powerful, perfectly powerful, perfectly knowing God who is absent of love, think about how terrifying that is, right? So we saw how the attributes of God, they interweave, they intertwine some and then overlap some, but they also balance each other out. We talked about the holiness of God, his complete otherness, really the holiness of God, his perfection being uh, the capstone attribute that the rest flow out of, his righteousness. God alone is perfectly right in all his actions. Everything he does is perfect without mistake. Every justice, everything God does is perfectly just and we talked about how you look at any period of world history, even the absolute best areas of human history, and we still see injustice. And, and we can see the frustration and feel the frustration as people realizing that perfect justice is simply something that has to wait for the kingdom of God, the sovereignty of God. And that's where we will pick up this morning, the sovereignty of of God. This is defined as Karn's dictionary. The Bible presents to us the God who reigns, who is in control, and who is not bounded or limited by the dictates of his creatures or by the circumstances of time. The sovereignty of God is one of those things that it is very hard, if not again impossible, 
for us to get our minds around completely. Have we not ran into this? How many times have I said that already in talking about our God? That here's an attribute of God. We can understand it, but not perfectly, not totally. Our minds, our human minds and our human reason really reaches a point where we can only get so far in understanding a magnificent, eternal infinite God. And when it comes to his sovereignty, uh, that's one of those things. It's really hard for people to grasp. So sadly, because we hit a limitation there and how we can understand God's sovereignty, it's one of those things that people often rebel against and want to put off. It's an approach that says, hey, I can't really understand this, so I'm just going to pretend like it doesn't exist. God is subject to no one. He does as he pleases and is in control of all things. One of the things that makes it tough for us to understand the sovereignty of God is we we walk through life experience making our own decisions, right? And making our own choices and exercising our will. And we want to go eat here for lunch. We go eat here for lunch, right? So how does that work with the sovereignty of God. There's a mystery there. And the Bible even shows us this mystery. We know that our salvation is 100% the work of God in our lives. And that it is the Holy Spirit who takes us from being spiritually dead to alive. Yet, we call people to choose to repent and put their faith in Christ. Something that only the Holy Spirit can even cause to happen. There's there's a mystery there that we see in Scripture and we see in our lives where God is sovereign, yet we are responsible for our own choices. We are responsible for the things we choose to do, yet God's sovereignty is not diminished. We see this with sin. Is God ever the author or the source? I'm ignoring that, so if y'all can't hear me, please tell me. I can't. So is God ever the source or the author or the cause of sin? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. We talked about his holiness, his justice, his righteousness. God is never the source of sin. Yet, is even sin under his sovereign control? In some mysterious way that we can only understand so much of, absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. There's a book out there that I would highly recommend called Spectacular Sins by John Piper. I don't know if we have it out there, but it's a great book about that very subject. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll get back to that in just a moment. Psalm 135.6, whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth, the seas and in all the deeps. The point he's making when he says heaven, earth, the seas, all the deeps, the psalmist is saying you can't get, escape God's sovereignty. Wherever you go, whatever you find, God is in control there. How about this? What a remarkable verse this is. Genesis 50, 20. This is Joseph. Y'all remember the story of Joseph, right? His family did some pretty terrible things to him. They were initially going to kill him, but then they're like, hey, actually, we can benefit more from this if we sell him into slavery. He gets sold into slavery. Then he gets... uh, unjustly accused of wrongdoing, thrown into prison, just a real chain of tragic events in Joseph's life that kind of start really precipitating when his brothers decide we're going to do this to our brother. And so when their father passes away, the brothers are kind of nervous, like, hey, how's how's Joseph going to react now that dad's gone? And Joseph tells them, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Is that a remarkable verse or what? Did they act in their own, in a sense, free will? Absolutely. They meant it for evil. They were sinful people acting as sinful agents to carry out a sinful task. They meant it for evil. Yet was God sovereignly, holy, justice, and in a completely just and righteous way exercising his sovereignty? Absolutely. God meant it for good. And we can see countless examples of this, the most prominent being the death of Christ. Was the crucifixion of Christ, the murder of Christ, was that a sinful act carried out by sinful men? 100%. Yet 
it's the pinnacle of God's plan of redemption, the death and resurrection of Christ. It's a remarkable thing about the sovereignty of God. And we see it in every aspect of our lives. Romans 8.28, an amazing verse. We know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purposes. Now, you got to keep the context in mind there, right? What's the good that Paul's talking about in that passage? Our conformity to the person of Christ. That's, that is our good. Us being sanctified and transformed into Christ's likeness. And Paul says that everything that happens in your life is under God's sovereign control for that purpose, if you're a child of God. That should bring a lot of rejoicing and a lot of peace to your life. Just recognizing that your highest good, the most important thing that can happen to you, the best thing that can happen to you, being transformed into the likeness of your Savior, God promises that his infinite power, like think about the universe, the um, the depths of the ocean, like black holes and all the crazy stuff that is in existence, the, the very power that spoke those things into being effortlessly, that same infinite power is at work personally in your life directing the things that happen for your ultimate good. That's remarkable. I mean, that really, that really should blow your mind. That is a remarkable thing. The sovereignty of God. When you're overwhelmed by it, and you should often be, just remember, this is the same power at work in my life. That's life-altering. So we got the holiness of God, righteousness. Unfortunately, these go through every time. Uh, sovereignty, eternality. This, this closely ties to the person of God, where we talked about his self-existence. The eternality of God. God has no beginning and no end. He exists outside of time. Time is one of those things we take it for granted. It, it seems pretty simple, right? It, like, you watch your clock and it moves. You kind of have an idea of how long an hour is, how long a day is. But... This is Brandon talking here. I could be totally wrong, all right? This is a few seconds of Brandon's opinion. I feel like when we get to heaven, we might really have our mind blown by what time actually is. Like, I think time could be way more complicated than we experience it. So that's why I say God exists outside of time. God exists outside of time. Like, I've even prayed for things that I know have already happened, but I don't know the outcome. But, like, I pray for things that I know, okay, I know this has happened already, and it's a done deal. I don't know what happened, though. I haven't heard the outcome. I'm going to pray for it, because, like, what's time to God? It's nothing. It's absolutely nothing, right? God exists outside of time. We're back to talking about biblical truth, okay? Maybe we'll get to heaven, and it'll be like, okay, yeah, time's just time. Um, I could be wrong. But uh, 1 Timothy 1.17, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Think back to Revelation 1.8. Jesus Christ. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last, and there is no God besides me. Jesus kind of claims that as his own when we get to Revelation. And you talk about the deity of Christ that this, this Christ claims, Isaiah 44, 6. 2 Peter 3, 8. Here's kind of what I was talking about a little bit. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. Time is, in a way, an irrelevant thing to God. You know, he existed before it. He'll exist long after. He is not bound by it in any way. 
But what's remarkable about our God is he, as he moves through eternity, all these attributes. If we had a God who was subject easily to change, how much would you really like cling on to these attributes? Like, yeah, it's great. God's, God's righteous today, but he, who knows what he's going to be like tomorrow. He might wake up and be having a bad day. Like me? I mean, I try my best to be consistent from day to day, but sometimes you just got to catch me on a better day, you know? I am sadly, in my flawed sinfulness, subject to change. Yet our God, we talk about the immutability of God. That God is not subject to change. He's not changed by circumstances. He's not changed by just uh, whatever is influencing, influencing his emotions at the moment. The attributes that we hold on to so dearly, we know will exist for eternity with our God, who is immutable, not subject to change. Once again, you look over the history of religions, and this is a somewhat remarkable idea. I mean, people were always trying to figure out, like, what are the gods thinking? Like, maybe it's not raining because we've made a god mad or something. Like, let's go see if we can, we better go see the seer or whoever and say, like, hey, what's going on? Or um, what, what's, what's the gods thinking today? Our God, though, the God of the Bible, the one true God, immutable. Malachi 3.6 For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. James 1.17 Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Both of these verses talk about any kind of hope we can have in God is largely based on the fact that he doesn't change. You look at Malachi there. People who are consistently falling short of what God's called them to, consistently not upholding their end of the bargain. Yet God can revisit his covenant with these sinful, subject-to-change people and say, I don't change, therefore you are not consumed. Same thing with James. James is rejoicing in the fact that our God is so good to us. Our God is so gracious. He gives us everything we need pertaining to life and godliness, and this God doesn't change. I mean, that's one of the things. Sometimes you get a good thing going in life, be it at work or, you know, whatever, and you're like, ah, I'm going to take advantage of this while it lasts because it could run out at any moment. Not with God, though. Not with God. Extends to Christ. I always think it's great when you see these verses that bring in the whole trinity with the attributes of God to show us and remind us that all these attributes apply equally. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Yesterday, today, and forever. With that, we come to our first omni. We brought up that word last week. Omniscient, omni, again, just means all. So when we say omniscient, or the omniscience of God, it is God's infinite knowledge. He knows himself and his own infinite being. He knows all things possible whether they ever become actual or not. And he comprehends all these things in one simultaneous act of knowing. I think that's a very interesting point that Carnes makes there, whether they become actual or not. And he knows all things simultaneously. There's this, this concept out there, they call it open theism, that God couldn't possibly know the future because then you have no free will. Like, if God knows that you're going to wake up tomorrow and eat Frosted Flakes, when you wake up tomorrow, do you have any option but to eat Frosted Flakes? Like, if we're standing here today 
and God says, hey, Labor Day morning, I know that Chris is going to have Frosted Flakes. When he wakes up tomorrow, can he possibly choose anything else? You know, they have a point. It's a little complicated. Like, again, I don't understand and don't claim to understand how the sovereignty of God and our free will work together. I think it's hidden somewhere in the fact that God is not bound by time in any way. And his omniscience over all things, past, future, and present, is simultaneous, as it says here, in one act of knowing. What I do know for a fact is that the Bible is very clear that God does know exactly what we will do tomorrow. Now, how we experience that in practice, again, it's a little bit strange. But the Bible is crystal clear that God is a God who declares the end from the beginning. Uh, You look at kind of the whole Isaiah 42, I don't know, 46 area, Isaiah 42 to 46, where God is repeatedly saying, like, hey, you... You people foolishly go after these idols that are pieces of wood, like things you'll burn to keep yourself warm. You also uh, will worship. That's foolishness. But one of the key things that God distinguishes himself from the false gods in is I know what is going to come to be before it comes to be. Isaiah 42.9, God declares all things before they spring forth. Before they happen, God knows it. Psalm 147.5, great is our Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Romans 11, we brought this verse up last week. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? When we hit up against the mysteries of God, and we hit up against things that God tells us clearly, such as his sovereignty, such as his omniscience, like, It's on us to accept by faith that even those things that we can't truly comprehend about God, if he says they're true, they are true. Look, think back to Job and Job and his friends. They sit around just trying to figure out God and come up with all these ideas about God and why things are happening. And God shows up and doesn't give them an explanation. Instead, he just says, look at who I am. Look at my wisdom and let that be enough. And that's enough for Job. You know, Job doesn't get his explanation, yet Job says, hey, I shut my mouth and I repent. (laughs) Uh, I don't need any further explanation from God. And I think that's what we come up with when, come up against when we think through God and what he does. We end up like Paul here in Romans and we just say, how great is our God? And how unsearchable are his ways? Can we know God? Back to the question we asked last week. Can we know God? Yes. But can we know him exhaustively? No, his ways, when we get into these attributes, his omniscience, they're just so far beyond us, but we accept them by faith, and God in his graciousness shows us everything we need to live the life that he's called us to live. It doesn't stop. As you go through these, you keep hitting things where you're like, okay, God, I'm just going to have to trust you because I can I can dimly see, as Paul says, like in a mirror, how this makes sense. But his omnipresence, God is all present. God does not have size or spatial dimensions and is present at every point of space with his old whole being, yet God acts differently in different places. An omnipresent God. Jeremiah 22. Where do we go there? There we go. Jeremiah 22, 23 to 24. 
Am I a God who is near, declares the Lord, and not a God far off? Can a man hide himself in hiding places so I do not see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill the heavens and the earth, declares the Lord? Psalm 139, I'll just read this for us. Psalm 139, 7 to 12. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed and shield, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. Have you ever been in a place and you really just don't feel God's presence? Yeah. You get to places in this world and in this life where, like, I just don't feel God's presence. And your brain, it's almost like it has two parts. You've got the half over here. I'm making it up. I don't know which half. The half over here that knows factual truth, that knows the truth of God. But then you got this half over here that doesn't feel it at all. You go back to Psalm 139. Wherever you are at, you've got to lean on this side of the brain that says, I trust and know that God is here. I'm subject to change, especially that half. Who knows what's going on, right? It's going to be different minute by minute. But wherever I go, no matter how remote I feel, how distant from God I feel, God is there. God is at all points in space completely. God is everywhere, omnipresent. That brings us to, I believe, the last omni here, omnipotence. Omnipotence. Our God, this is simple, all-powerful. There's nothing that our God cannot do. You, I, I often wondered as a kid, like, why did God make this or that? Like, this galaxy or this planet, like, seems from my perspective we could have done all right without Pluto, you know? Like, but why did God do all these things? He shows us his power. His omnipotence is clear. He shows us that he is all-powerful. Hebrews 1, 2, and 3. And this is, again, talking about Jesus here. We, we hit this verse last week talking about Jesus, the Trinity coming into the attributes of God once again. But talking about Jesus, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. what, What jumps out at me here and gets me excited in this passage, God making all things is, you know, beyond just imagination impressive. Making all things spectacular but he didn't make all things and walk away he didn't make all things and let it run or make all things and say hey best of luck to you he made all things and he upholds all things by the word of his power the 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 harmony of these attributes that we've hit on what are they without the power of god It's great to have promises from somebody with good intentions and somebody who's going to try their best. But when we get our promises from God, we know that there's an infinite, unstoppable power source behind that promise. That should blow you away. I mean, that should floor you. 
when God says, I can keep you for eternity, he's got all of the power in, that we can imagine and beyond that, enabling him to do that. When he says, I can conform you to Christ's likeness, it's infinite power behind that. When he says, hey, I'm going to provide for you the needs that you need in life, the, the, there's infinite resources to meet those needs. The power of God should radically alter the way we look at life, the way we think about life. Jeremiah 32, 37. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? And you have to wonder how often God puts us in a place in life where it just doesn't seem possible. It doesn't seem possible for things to work out. But what he's teaching us is he's saying, hey, give me a second. Let me show you my power. Trust in me. Put your faith in me. Follow me. Let me show you my power. Add to these attributes. I mean, you should already be pretty overwhelmed by the person of God. But add love to this. Add this list that there is a passionate love for the church and also you individually. You individually. When used of God, the doctrine that God eternal is the love is the doctrine that God eternally gives of Himself to others. It almost doesn't sound right. To me, God gives of himself. Why would God need to give me anything? It should be the other way around. We get so used in this world to it's the powerful and they don't really give much. In fact, it's everybody else who's got to give to serve the powerful. That's that's the way the world typically operates. So when we hear that this infinite, omnipotent, all-powerful God, the, all these attributes that this God gives of himself? It's just so counterintuitive from the way we're used to operating in this world. First John 4, 8. The one who does not love does not know God. For God is love. When you hear this, it should really make you check your own life. I mean, that's really kind of the point of 1 John, anyhow. The test of eternal life. 1 John, he's painting this picture that says, this is what a child of God looks like, and this is what somebody who does not know God looks like. It's something for us to compare our lives against. And when we think about love, the one who does not love does not know God. Well, what is love? That's kind of the question that comes to mind. Like, if we're going to check ourselves up against this test that John gives us, we got to know what love is. What is love? Well, go back to what we just said. God giving himself to others. It's the picture of love. Just consider what the gospel is. So, this infinite God, who is deserving of all glory, creates these people out of love to have fellowship with him, to enjoy him. I mean, that's like saying, hey, I got this amazing ranch over here. And uh, I mean, this is like a sliver of what that means. But it's like saying, hey, I got this amazing place over here. I just want you to enjoy it. That's what when God created us to have fellowship with him, it's like, hey, I am a glorious God, and I just want you to enjoy fellowship with me and enjoy love with me. And we said, nah, that's okay. We'd rather go do our own thing. We willfully chose to make enemies out of an infinitely glorious God who offers us everything. Yet what does God do? What would make sense from my perspective is that we would go groveling back to God and say, hey, 
I'm sorry. Like now I've, uh, we've gotten a few months into this garden and like I'm seeing we made a big mistake here. I'm seeing that you were offering us something unimaginably great and we made a mistake. So I'm coming back groveling and begging for forgiveness. Like that would make sense. But it's not that we don't as enemies of God, we continue in our rebellion. We continue to drive further and further away from God in and of ourselves Yet it's actually this infinitely glorious God who says, you know, I'm going to step in in love and I'm going to bring their hearts back to me. And I'm even going to make the way of reconciliation through my own son. I mean, that, that's God giving of himself. And he doesn't just stop there. It would be one, the gospel would be infinitely worthy of our praise if it was simply God saying, you know, you sin woefully against me, I forgive you. We'll go on our own ways. I mean, that would be great, right? But that's not the gospel. The gospel is, okay, I'm not just going to forgive you for being my enemy. I'm actually going to make you my son and just pour infinite blessings upon you. That is love. When we say God is love, the gospel is the picture of that where he takes the action to make totally unworthy enemies of his, his children, and just to bestow unimaginable love upon them. That is giving of himself to others. That kind of action, that kind of love is remarkable between people. It's even more remarkable when you think of, that's the God of this universe acting that way towards me. You really can't get your mind around these things, right? I think love is one that we say, yeah, I can understand that one. But no, not if you really think of what God is doing. And so that's a pretty high standard <laughs> when you go to compare your own life up against it in First John's. So that should make you run to the gospel, right? It's like, God, okay, I don't love that way. I want to love that way, though. Forgive me for my shortcomings. Build me up in love. Romans 8. 37 to 39. Let me pull that up here and just read that for us. This is one of those scary moments where it's in your notes, but you didn't write the words out and you don't remember why you put it in the notes. So you're turning and you're like, jump out, making sense, please. All right, let's see. Romans 8, 37 to 39. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. Paul. But in all these things... Paul's talking about just so many difficult circumstances in life. So many difficult things, the difficulties of his ministry, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. There's nothing more important that you can possess than the love of God. And Paul reminds us there, nothing can ever take that away from you. You can't be robbed of it. Think about how great that is to know the most important possession you have cannot be taken away from you. Tomorrow, it'll be there. A year from now, it'll be there. Ten years into eternity, the most important thing that you possess is guaranteed. There's love in the Trinity, though, so this is interesting. How the attributes of God, they're eternal. God, whatever attributes God has, he eternally possesses. Love requires an object, something to be loved. So how did that happen before creation? That's where the Trinity comes in. That's where the, the eternal fellowship and love within the three persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit comes in. And in Matthew 3.17, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. That's also, I think, what we can often overlook in the cross. Um, we, the graphic of just the physical horrors of the cross can overwhelm us. But 
even more powerfully and deeply just this eternal bond of love and fellowship within the Trinity is at that point at the cross broken when the Father pours out all his wrath on his Son. And this Christ, who at that point, well, who is, not at that point, but who is 100% person and feels just like you and I feel, at that point, that eternal fellowship that he is known for eternity is broken. It's pretty remarkable and really just the depths there. You can't, can't really get your mind around it. I think we got two more. The truth. God is truth. God is absolute truth and his truth is firm. This is something, an attribute of God, you've got to cling to like a life raft in this world. And, you know, it's not just our day and age. I mean, since Adam, deception and a lack of truth, a lack of understanding, it's been a problem. It's a problem today. It's always been a problem. And it's going to be a problem until Christ decides to create the new earth. We cling to the fact that God is absolute truth. And his truth is firm. Which is, I feel like, highlighted for us even more. And we kind of live in a day where it's like, what is true? Like, I actually want to know what's going on and what is true. And it is really hard to figure it out. Like, you name a topic. It's, like, hard to figure out what is going on. But thankfully, when it comes to the most critical spiritual realities, when it comes to the most critical realities, God is truth. Uh, This is just something that comes up repeatedly. God cannot lie. Numbers 23, 19, Titus 1, 2, Hebrews 6, 18 all tell us that God cannot lie. Jesus says something very interesting. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus says he is the truth. He is the pinnacle of God's revelation. John 16, 13. Jesus calls the promised Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth dwells within you if you are a follower of Christ. That's why you can understand spiritual realities when it is literally impossible for anybody outside of Christ to understand them. Because you have the spirit of truth residing within you. The author of truth resides within you and illuminates Scripture for your understanding. John 8.32, Jesus says, The truth will set you free. Lastly here, but certainly not least, The mercy of God. God's attribute of mercy. If you don't get excited to see mercy on here, then there's something wrong with you. Either you don't understand God or you don't understand yourself. Because if you understand God and you look at this list of attributes and you recognize just his perfect holiness... And you think Leviticus 19.2 says, kind of look, thinking through holiness is kind of the head one, the all, most all-encompassing one here. Leviticus 19.2, God tells his people that they are to be holy as he's holy. That's the standard for his people. And Christ upholds that standard. You look at the Sermon on the Mount and Christ takes Leviticus 19.2 and says, hey, you're to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect and you begin to get overwhelmed by just all these attributes, and you reflect on yourself, and you recognize your own sinfulness, and how far you fall short of anything that even closely resembles that, and you are so glad to see mercy upon this list. Because we need it so bad. God's compassion upon those who have opposed his will. That's all of us. That's all of us. Every day. Every day. We fall short of the standard. And once again, it's the mercy of God is remarkable. It's uh, the lender 
going out of his way to help the debtor. It's, it's the opposite of what we would expect is, or what it should be. It's the mercy of God. Some verses here. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. Nah, this isn't good. We've got to read the whole thing. Because this is, I mean, this is good. But it's way better when you got verses 1 to 3. That's where mercy shines. So I'm going to pull that up. Ephesians 2, 1 to 3. Or 1 through 5. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Isn't that remarkable? That we chose, I mean, read verse, you heard verses 1 to 3, we were indulging our desires and making ourselves enemy of God, enemies of God, but God steps in which is unimaginable mercy and love and makes us his children. It's a remarkable thing. We were dead. We couldn't do anything for ourselves. We were hopeless when God stepped in. 1 Peter 1.3 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He caused us to be born again. That's the um, picture of salvation that we see throughout the Bible. From Genesis 1 or 3, Genesis 3 to the end of Revelation, it is God at work. It is God's initiative. It is God's power. The, the infinitely glorious God showing his love and his mercy to unworthy sinners. What's the application of all this? First of all, this should cause us to worship. Not just Sunday morning, but all the time. I mean, this should radically reorient your life. To where you're, you recognize, okay, my purpose for being here is to worship this God. To glorify this God in everything he gives me to do. At work, school, uh, family, relationships, everything. My life is about worshiping and glorifying this God. He is worthy of that. Reverence. Um, Again, along with worship, but just I think the the nuance there is just recognizing the greatness of God, not taking him for granted. It's so easy to take things, especially with God, for granted because he offers us unlimited fellowship with him. You want to spend time with God? You can do it today as much as you want tomorrow. We start to take him for granted sometimes, though, and, and we, we get so familiar with things that can become dull to us that shouldn't be dull. Reverence, we should, when we feel that, step back and just with a fresh perspective, dig back in to who God is. Joy, I mean, that should bring you, these should bring you so many joys. This, this, this amazing God is the God who chooses to love you and have fellowship with you. And pay attention to every step you take. Go look at Psalm 1. The Lord, his eyes are on the ways of the righteous. He watches the steps of those who belong to him and is involved in every intricate detail of their life. That should cause you incredible joy. It should cause you incredible peace. Life is scary and life is extremely difficult. We We don't show that. We pretend 
like life is easy because that's just what we do, right? We don't want to show vulnerability. So people ask us how it's going. We're going to say great. And uh, we're going to always like post the best pictures we have and we're going to act like everything's. But the reality is life is extremely difficult. Life is very hard. Life is full of scary things. One of my favorite things about the Bible is it doesn't gloss over that. Go read the Psalms. Go read Paul's letters. They are very honest about how difficult life is, yet they are also very clear about the incredible God we serve and that in the midst of the valley of the shadow of death, in the midst of the scariness that this world is because of sin, even our own sin, we can have what what um, Paul calls a peace that is beyond all understanding. A peace that doesn't seem reasonable based on external circumstances, but it's very reasonable when you keep in mind the reality of who God is. Evangelism. This is the last one. Evangelism. Uh, Christ said, don't keep this to yourself. <laughs> like, go out into all the world, make disciples. Tell people about who I am. Teach them to obey the things that I've commanded you. These, this God isn't for us to keep to ourselves, but to tell others. Our lives are about his worship, his glory, and we want to see others worshiping him and glorifying him. We are called and really have the privilege of being a part of him building his kingdom and him building the church. Christ builds the church. Don't ever get that mixed up or lose sight of that, but he does that through his people telling others and telling others about him and making disciples. So hopefully that's helpful. The person and attributes of God. I believe, Chris, next week you're taking us into the person of Christ. That'll be awesome. So um, I'll pray for us and we'll get to go worship God. Lord, we do thank you so much for your infinite goodness and infinite greatness and I pray that you would help us to not take those things for granted, but just to every day be overwhelmed with the reality of who you are and the implication that that has for our lives. We thank you so much for your love, your mercy, your goodness to us, the gospel, and for Christ's death for our sins. Pray as we go to worship that you would focus our hearts and our minds in on you, and it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.